Dear kind Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to come together and discuss this topic. But Lord, we want your presence. And Lord, we want you to come and join us and cover each one of us with the blood of Jesus and protect us from the evil one because we know he's going to want to disrupt this. This is not something he wants addressed. And Lord, we pray for a measure of Holy Spirit that you will anoint our ears and that we will hear your word. And, and give us wisdom, Lord. Thank you so very much for your love and compassion and commitment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I have to tell you, one concern about speaking on this subject has been that it might bring, bring pain to someone in the audience who has experienced an abortion. And um, I wonder if that's the reason we're so quiet about it. Now, being sensitive is very important, but I think sometimes being sensitive has kept us from being, um, not saying enough about the subject, being too quiet. I have been one of those ladies in the audience, and I suffered my secret sorrow for a long time. No one talked about it. No one knew how to talk about it. That is until I met Antoinette, and Antoinette, I will forever be grateful to her because she answered the Lord's calling on her life, and she has used her voice and it's made a huge difference in my life. Now, the Guttenmacher Institute in February of 2014 gave this incident report on abortion in the United States. Between 1973 and 2011, nearly 53 million legal abortions were performed. It's over 55 million now. 21% of all the pregnancies end in an, an induced abortion. At least half of American women will experience an unintended pregnancy by the age of 45. Four in ten of these are terminated in abortion. Half of these women have had at least one previous abortion. Now, who are these ladies? Well, 18% of them are teenagers. 57% are in their 20s. 61% of abortions are performed by women who have one or more children already. 37% are Protestant, 28% Catholic. Now, with numbers like that, it is very likely that someone in this audience has had an abortion. Or maybe you know someone who has. There may be parents who have coerced a child to have an abortion. Maybe they were afraid she wouldn't finish her education, or maybe they were just embarrassed because they had a sexually active child in their family. Now, as you listen to us, if your heart begins to break, I want to encourage you, do not stuff it and do not run from it because there is healing in the land. The Lord is present and he wants you to experience his full reconciliation. God is good and faithful and I want you to come see us. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord and your children will return to their own territory. I have claimed these promises. The Lord is anxious to make up for the years the locusts have eaten. Now, I was brought up a Seventh-day Adventist. I went through our Christian schools. I was a pathfinder. I loved, did pretty good at in-gathering, and I loved singing out of the orange songbooks at Vespers. I uh, loved going through academy I have great memories of band trips and choir trips and temperance rallies and Bible conferences. I loved it all. I worked at summer camp, not just a camper, but loved working at summer camp. 
I was baptized in elementary school, but in college, I mean, in academy, I gave my heart to Jesus. I was 15. Now in college, things were rougher. My parents were divorced, and I experienced the hypocrisies that exist in our church and the prejudices. And I distanced myself for a while. I had to reconsider my convictions about this church, and I asked questions that I'm sure many young adults do. Is this where I'm supposed to be? Is the Lord here, even with these hypocrisies that I see? You know, does the God that I gave my heart to at 15 even exist? Well, God, in all his mercy, was able to answer all my questions. And when the time came for me to marry my college sweetheart, we both knew we wanted to have a Christian home and a Seventh-day Adventist home. I knew that even with our problems, the Lord had anointed this church, and we were given a high calling. But now with that said, six months before my wedding day, I realized I was pregnant, and I was embarrassed to death. How could I break my grandmother's heart? How could I face the disappointed and critical expressions of those in my church? My husband-to-be and I had only been intimate once, but that didn't matter. Now, to make matters worse, I had had a series of x-rays on my lower back for work, and every physician I called encouraged me to abort the pregnancy. Not one of them referred to it as your baby. It was always the pregnancy. Well, life became a frantic blur for me. I don't even remember my husband's response when I told him. I called the abortion clinic, found out how much it would cost, how far along I had to be, and I set the date. At the clinic, I talked to a counselor first. She wasn't a Christian, just a sympathetic ear, and she assured me at this time it was just a tiny fuzzball. Just a fuzzball. Now, I was a nurse. I had studied plenty of anatomy and physiology, but it never occurred to me to question this. You have to realize, I was in a panic. Well, my life must have been in a panicked blur for me to consider having this procedure without any anesthesia. I was scared to death, and the procedure was a nightmare, and the pain so bad that I lost consciousness before it was over. Mm. Well, it's strange because when it is over, you do feel a sense of relief. But it's very deceptive and it's very short-lived. The fact of what I had done was harrowing. It was so harrowing, in fact, that it just about destroyed me. I hated myself and this man that I loved with all my heart and wanted to live the rest of my life with all of a sudden became repulsive to me. I had anger towards him. It was sad, and it was terrible, and it didn't end there. You see, the topic of abortion had never been a part of my life. I had no clue what the effect of that would have on me. That's why I have such a burden that we educate our young people in our academies and colleges. Now, I've taught my children since they were young that panic kills. When you panic, you're not thinking straight, and you're likely to do something stupid and get yourself killed or someone else. Now, I don't know if you've heard stories about people who have run into a fire instead of away from it simply because they panicked. Well, when I found out I was pregnant, I panicked, and I ran into the fire, and someone was killed. Now, after we'd been married a short time, I got up one night, and I took the scissors, and I cut 
all my hair off. Stubs. There was nothing, there was to be nothing lovely about me. I was constantly punishing myself. I would sit on the toilet with a razor and I would run that razor up the inside of my arm. It was like I needed to feel that pain. You see, on the inside I had all this pain, but on the outside I was numb. Now, when I became pregnant the second time after we were married, I was, always, I was already convinced that I was unfit and terrible. There was no way I could be a mother, and I had a second abortion. I called the clinic, lied about how far along I was, and set the date. No emotions, no crying and fear this time. I went in, listened to the little speech, and got it over with. Just as that baby had been taken mercilessly from the security of my womb, my identity was being stripped mercilessly from my soul. Now, by this time, bulimia had complete control over me. Shame destroys, and it was destroying me. It digs a big, deep, empty, nasty hole, and you try to stuff that hole just to deal with it. I would stuff food down my throat until I could not swallow and then it would all come up, one big upheaval. I was getting it all out. What I needed, though, was a redemptive purge or catharsis. I needed the healing of a savior, the redeeming power of Jesus in my life. But the bulimia only brought loneliness and more shame. Now, so many of the joys of being a new bride were taken from me. I could not sleep at night, and I battled constantly with depression. And eventually, I went to a therapist who gave me sleeping pills and antidepressants. But she never took a history to see what could be the underlying cause. And eventually, I gave up. Now, my husband and I, we went to a marriage counselor who promptly told us she didn't think our marriage could be saved. And that was terrible to us because we loved each other. It was terribly discouraging. We wanted our marriage to work. We were clueless. She never asked us if we'd ever had a miscarriage, a stillbirth, or even an abortion, issues that can create all kinds of unresolved havoc. You know, it was never brought up, and we certainly didn't bring it up. I remember one night I uh, got up. I was desperate. And I called a 1-800 number for the post-abortive woman. I'd heard it on the radio. So I remember hiding in the washroom, and I called her. And when she answered, I told her my story. I was making myself so vulnerable. And the first thing out of her mouth was, well, you know abortion's murder, don't you? Well, I can tell you, I hung up the phone. I wanted to vomit. There was no mercy in that. And soon after that, a girl I worked with at the hospital invited my husband and myself to go to church with her. So we did. And wouldn't you know it, the sermon that particular Sunday was on abortion. Now, the preacher was very animated and loud. And all he did was rant and rave about the sin of abortion. And finally, he declared that God would not and could not forgive a woman who had had an abortion. Well... You know, of course, he quickly recanted, but for me, he confirmed all the reasons I had for hating myself. And I just sunk deeper into my shame. And he also 
lock the door for me to ever, well, to reach out for help for a long time. Six years passed before I talked to anyone about my abortions again, and my life was one of survival. The bulimia continued. I had food hidden everywhere. I spent money we didn't have. I lived in secrecy. I was insecure, and my marriage was in shambles. But now by this time, I had a three-year-old son, and I had six-month-old twins. So I was exhausted, and I wanted to run away from it all. I wanted to quit. All I could do was pray, Lord, just hold on to me. Just hold on to me. Well, right when things did hit bottom, and it hit bottom hard, my sister recommended that I go see a friend of hers. It was a woman who had a ministry. I didn't know what to expect, but I went. And this woman was very kind to me. That night, she took me to the foot of Jesus, the cross. Now, I was so beaten down, I didn't even know how to pray. And I would repeat after her. She would pray, and I would repeat it. And she would pray, and I would repeat it. It was beautiful. And before I left there, I shared my abortions with her. First time in a long time, I'd actually trusted someone with my just deepest sorrow and shame. Well, now, she was very serious with me, but she didn't do anything to cause me to lose hope. And with her help that night, I was able to confess my sin, the sin of abortion. And I know my confession was sincere, and I know the Lord forgave me. In fact, later that night, I was at my sister's house, and I remember very well lifting up my hands and feeling the Lord's presence like I had never felt in all my life. And the Lord came over me, and he healed me of that bulimia. And he healed me from the damage that I had done to myself because of the bulimia. Now, my life did change, and I had a lot of courage, and I could hang on like I had never been able to in a long time. But with that said, I did not know or realize the importance of dealing with those abortions on another level. There was more work that needed to be done. My journey wasn't over yet. Now, this affected my life for another 21 years, and it wasn't until I met Antoinette that I realized this. But before I share the rest of my story, I want Antoinette to come up here and, and uh, share her story with you, and also the beginning of Mafkia. In 1981, my mother was in an extremely abusive marriage. Her husband was addicted to, her husband, my biological father, was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and she was not a believer. She also wasn't an Adventist. Um, she was from California, and back in 1981, abortions were free in California. So what she decided to do is she was going to save up enough money, and when she finally had enough money, she was going to get on a plane, she was going to leave this marriage, she was going to go back to California, have her abortion, and be done with it. Well, she secretly gave money to a friend of hers because she couldn't bring money into the house, so she gave money to a friend of hers for safekeeping. And when she thought she finally had enough money, she went to her friend and said, I need my money. I'm ready to get out of here and go home. And the friend said, what money? I spent all of it. She had no way out. She had nowhere to go. Well, her husband, my biological father, had cut out an ad from the paper. She was experiencing morning sickness. And he cut out an ad in the paper, and he placed it on the coffee table, and the ad said, hey, I'm alive, voice of the preborn. It was an advertisement for a crisis pregnancy center. 
So she went in um, to confirm, in fact, that she was pregnant and asked, will you please help me to have an abortion? And they said, no, we won't help you have an abortion, but would you come back for some counseling? Please come back for counseling. And so she agreed. She went back for counseling. And when she went back, as she was sitting in her counseling session, uh, she picked up a magazine, Life magazine. We have a copy of it at our exhibit. It was the first time the world had ever seen the baby in utero. And the magazine depicts all these different stages of life from conception through on, throughout the nine months of pregnancy. And it shows formation, fingers and toes, arms and legs, hands and feet. She never knew that the baby living inside her was alive. And when she realized that, she said, the Holy Spirit just fell over her and she said, I don't know what the future will bring, but I'm going through it with this baby. Well, I was that baby. I was not raised Adventist. I was actually raised Southern Baptist. Um, The Lord, though, brought me to an understanding of the Sabbath day, and when he did, I was convinced I need to keep Sabbath. And so eventually I made my way into the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, And I studied for about a year and a half. I was really convinced that this was the church for me. This is a church that I needed to join. I had come home, basically. Um, When I came across the uh, church's official stance on abortion, I was really quite um, amazed. I didn't quite know what to do. Uh, I have been uh, worked in these issues since I was born. My mother and I have shared our testimony many, many, many times, and the Lord has just brought such incredible healing and life from those experiences. And when I came across that, um, I didn't really know what to do or where to go. Um, and as I, I was most concerned with um, uh, our silence on the issue and the... Um, the inconsistencies. I was counseled eventually. Um, Antoinette, you don't not join. You join and you seek to make it whole. You seek to make a difference. And so in September of 2010, I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And in 2011, the Mafkia began. I met Antoinette at the GYC in Houston, Texas, 2011. Now, the abortion, oh, let's see, yeah. The abortion was supposed to be a solution to a problem, but instead it created a larger-than-life problem. According to abortion advocates, the post-abortive woman should be feeling fine about her decision. She was exercising her right. It is her body, isn't it? But is it really... If she doesn't feel fine, it's because something was wrong with her before she had the abortion. If there is emotional instability after the abortion, it's because she was unstable prior to the abortion. Some pro-choice activists claim that it is our religiosity or religion that causes us to have a hard time after choosing abortion. Well, in the late 1800s, thousands of women suffering from hysteria were incarcerated. Now, leaders within the French Enlightenment also held and encouraged the view that it was the dangers of religion causing this kind of behavior. Even though there was significant evidence 
that this hysteria was the result of sexual abuse at a young age. There was no political or social support for investigation. And thousands of women remained incarcerated in their insane asylums. Now, their hysterical behavior was in response to a trauma. But instead of validating their trauma, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Psychiatrists and society preferred to think that the fundamental problem lay in the fragile nature of women themselves. The link between hysteria and sexual assault wasn't seriously explored until the 1970s. And it was only in the 1980s that the traumatic nature of sexual assault and the resulting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder were universally accepted. Now, this same pattern of behavior towards trauma was seen in wartime under conditions of unremitting horror and trench warfare and during World War I, men began breaking down in shocking numbers. They began to produce symptoms that looked like the hysteria in women. They screamed and they wept, they froze, they couldn't speak, they were unresponsive. Now the military authorities didn't want this report to get out. They were more afraid of the demoralizing effect it would have on society. They insisted that true and noble men would never succumb to terror, but find glory in the challenge. It was declared that men who were susceptible to the hysteria of women had defects in their masculinity. Once again, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Now, interest in the long-term effects of battle trauma was not really approached until the 1970s when our Vietnam vets came back and they formed rap groups. And through these groups, they were able to validate each other's stories and have the courage to resist any kind of uh, effort to discredit their bravery. Now, it was during this time that the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder, as we know today, was developed. Sadly, Many women today are locked into their own private insane asylum. And I say insane asylum simply because you do feel like you're losing your mind due to the traumatic nature of abortion. Once again, there's no political or very little political and social support. But now as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? Prior to the 1960s, Investigations on the effects of abortion concluded almost without exception that abortion inevitably causes trauma and it does pose a severe threat to our psychological health. By the late 1950s, population control advocates set their sights on regulating birth control and abortion. Major population control donors like the Rockefeller Center, the Rockefeller Foundation, made research dollars available to prove the benign nature of abortion. The subsequent shift in social, political, and scientific thinking was perfectly coordinated. By the late 1960s, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, and the American Psychological Association all reversed their prior positions in opposition to abortion cited this new body of research that purported to prove abortion was safe and actively supported the repeal of abortion, anti-abortion laws. Since the Roe v. Wade decision, 
1973, the commitment of these health professionals, <coughs> health um, organizations to abortion hasn't wavered. Their reasoning began to suggest that the negatively affected women were those who were most psychologically fragile prior to their abortion. Once again, instead of validating the trauma, the credibility of the victim is attacked. Now, in the late 1970s, women who had experienced emotional and physical problems after abortion started coming together. And in 1982, the group Women Exploited by Abortion, WEBA, was formed. It had a huge impact on our nation. And within a year, they had chapters in all 50 states. Most of the post-abortion ministries that we have today were formed by women who were part of that WEBA movement. Now, at the same time, there were small numbers of psycho psychologists who were working with women, and they began to recognize that um, the women that they were treating that had a history of abortion were showing clusters of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the family psychotherapist Vincent Rue was the first to define post-abortion syndrome. This is a variant of the post-traumatic stress disorder. David Reardon, director of the Elliott Institute, began researching the effects of abortion in the 1980s. So, even though the American Medical Association called it a myth, and the American Psychiatric Association attempted to squelch any recognition of post-abortion trauma, the evidence about the traumatic nature of abortion continues to accumulate. According to the Elliott Institute, 61% of women feel guilty for what they've done. 52% deal with depression. Still others deal with anger and sorrow and grief. Bitterness, 52% said they've suffered regret. They've endured anguish and remorse, despair, shame, unworthiness. There's loneliness, helplessness, helplessness, 57% self-condemnation. There's anxiety and confusion, self-hatred. 54% are unforgiving of themselves. They experience emptiness, uncontrollable weeping, and loss of dignity. Now you can see why so many of these women deal with alcohol and drug abuse or self-punishing and degrading behaviors like eating disorders. Promiscuity is real common. There's suicidal tendencies and there's repeat abortions. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now the percentages I shared with you are actually low. The um, two reasons that affect that is people, um, post-abortive women don't want to share. They don't want to participate in post-abortion studies. They conceal what they've done. And also another thing is that the um, after effects of abortion are delayed. The average time before a, women, a woman begins to feel the trauma of the decision she's made is five years. It's usually eight to ten years before they even start getting help. Dr. 
Dr. Julius Vogel, a psychiatrist and obstetrician who has performed about 20,000 20, abortions, insists that every woman, whatever her age, background, sexuality, has a trauma at destroying a pregnancy. A level of humanness is touched. This is a part of her own life. When she destroys a pregnancy, she is destroying herself. There is no way it can be innocuous. There was a Los Angeles poll taken, and it found that 70% of women who admitted to having had an abortion stated they believe abortion is morally wrong. Another poll showed that 70% believe abortion involves the killing of a human life, a human being, violating their own moral standard. Now remember, this only represents those who are willing to participate in this study. So, moral dilemmas. Moral dilemmas, by their very nature, involve emotional and intellectual conflict over the decision. This conflict, for many, many, produces a powerful sense of crisis in their life, leaving women completely overwhelmed by their situation. These women oftentimes will rush into an abortion, like I ran into the fire, without ever examining their full range of beliefs and needs and feelings. Another very sobering aspect of this is that those who are in a state of crisis, and this applies to any crisis, but in this particular one, because it's a moral issue, it's even more heart-wrenching. Those who are in a state of crisis are more vulnerable to outside influences than they would be in a non-crisis situation. The state of crisis, especially when it involves moral dilemmas, causes people to have trust, less trust in their own opinion, and they look to others. It creates a heightened psychological accessibility in which they become more reliant on the opinions of others, especially authority figures. When I read that, I thought about all the physicians that I called when I was so scared in Reno, Nevada. I'll never forget that. So they become more reliant on the opinions of others, especially authority figures. You know, I don't think this is the time to be, you know, remain silent about this issue. I think we need to learn how to minister to young women who are in a crisis pregnancy. And I think we need to learn how to minister to women who have had abortions. I think we've been too silent for too long. I found this quote. I want to share it with you. If God abhors one sin above another of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in case of an emergency. Indifference and neutrality and a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility toward God. Now, when I met Antoinette at the 2011 GYC, I left that hall crying. I felt desperate, panicky, and sad. Now, she had all this joy, and I didn't. Now, I had confessed and repented of this sin, and I knew the Lord had forgiven me, but there was more work to be done. And I will tell you, ladies, there's been a number of women who've come to me and say, I, I repented. I asked the Lord to forgive me. Why do I still have so much pain? What's wrong with me? Excuse me. And the devil is going to enter in on that point and, and cause that woman to doubt her forgiveness. 
And believe me, it's hard to believe that Jesus can forgive you of something like that. You have to come to the feet of Jesus and experience Jesus' love. And you need to be led so many times to that experience just as I was led. But it wasn't until I um, attended a retreat for the post-abortive that I understood the incredible need to have that trauma of abortion validated. And I had to deal with my denial. I had to acknowledge my loss and I had to grieve. I had not allowed myself to grieve. I had to confront my forbidden grief before I could finally forgive me. Now, can you see why the church has such an opportunity to minister here? As Christians, we cannot compromise with society and politics when it comes to the issue of abortion. We have to remember that the work of the enemy is not abrupt, but it's a secret undermining of our principles. And we're not to copy any human being. There's no human being wise enough to be our criteria. Having the attitude that decisions about life must be made in the context of a fallen world is not acceptable. Heaven begins now for us, or not at all. The principles of heaven will govern every aspect of our life, regardless of the magnitude of that crisis we face. We hold the healing balm of Gilead in our hand, and I'm afraid we're not even using it, even with our own Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters. Antoinette and I have met many women, post-abortive women, who are hurting, and we have received heartbreaking letters. Now, because of our faith, we as Seventh-day Adventists should be jealous for the nations around us to see our God work. But how can we encourage others to trust God though the heavens fall when we don't? Now, abortions wounded are um, seeking out recovery programs at record numbers. And I would say that speaks for itself. Women are desperate for healing. And I'm afraid that if we don't take a moral stand on this issue and show the world and each other right here in our own church, who it is that we put our trust in, we're going to miss out on a grand opportunity to minister in the name of Jesus. And I'm afraid we're going to have regrets throughout eternity because of it. Scripture tells us that we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. In John 8, 32. Why are we called to share what is true? So that we can be a vessel through which the captive is set free. I am sending you, it says in Acts, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We share what is true so that through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are dying can breathe new life. Our Savior raises the dead to life, not just for eternity, here, now, in these moments. If we do not know what is true, or if despite knowing what is true, we waver, we gloss over it, 
or fail to raise the standard, then how are those who are dying, how will they be brought to new life? How will they come to breathe the free air of redemption? I once read a line in a book called Redeeming Love. And the line read, would you have her hang on her cross forever? The magnitude of that question is striking to me. There is a fundamental truth that unites every single one of us. Someone is going to hang on your cross. And there are only two choices, you or your Redeemer. Either we will yield our lives in humility to the Lord, accepting his sacrifice, or we ourselves will hang on our own cross. And we will spend the rest of our lives straining and grasping as we pay penance, desperately trying to be enough to make it right. We cannot pay that debt. And do you know what? The post-abortive woman can't pay that debt either. And neither can the post-abortive man. Our sin separates us just as profoundly as the act of abortion separates them. And what we must not fail to understand is that none of us, not a single one, will find peace, forgiveness, freedom apart from the cross. So what is the significance here? If we excuse sin, if we refuse to call it by its rightful name, if we trivialize it, then we stand as a barrier to the redemption for the very person who is so desperate to find it. Do we need to be forgiven for something that is not sin? No, not at all. We share what is true, not to condemn, but because the truth sets us free. And if we do not point her to the light, then where is she going to go? The question that faces us is, will we embrace our calling as individuals and as a church to be instruments that help set the captive free? The tragedy and devastation of Diane's story is not unique to her story, as she shared. We have heard countless stories of tragedy and devastation. Women who share things like, the enemy tells me that the reason my children don't believe in the Lord is because I had an abortion. I want the weight of that condemnation just to sink in for a moment. What is she going to do? The reason your children don't believe in the Lord is because you had an abortion? There is nothing that enables her to make that right. There is nothing she possesses that can turn back the hands of time. There is nothing she can do against that sort of condemnation. And so she's faced with a condemnation that she cannot escape. And consider the implications of that condemnation. The implication is not simply that the Lord is not for you. The implication of that condemnation is that the Lord is not for you and that the Lord is set against you. What is she going to do? Who is she going to turn to? Well, she's not going to turn to the Lord. 
She's not going to turn to the one who she believes also condemns her. So what does she do? Well, as you've heard, she might cut herself because cutting allows her to feel something. She stuffs herself and then purges again and again and again, looking for cleansing of some kind. She, just like us, she chases idols and lovers desperate to be made whole. And the question that we are being faced with is, who is going to tell this woman the truth, the life-giving, grace-filled truth that she has been redeemed? Well, that's you and that's me. That's we as individuals. That's us as a church. We have a calling. We literally have a calling from the Lord to be instruments of his redemptive grace. We literally have a duty to help set the captive free. And if we will do this, if we will take up this duty, if we will embrace this calling, we will watch as our women and our men are set free. Our women, our men. Daughters, sisters, mothers, wives, girlfriends, husbands, fathers, sons, individuals, families, communities restored. Will we embrace our calling? Will we embrace this duty? Will we accept the hand that's been offered to us by the Lord? My prayer is that our answer would be a resounding yes. The first step in embracing this calling is we have to reach the post-abortive woman where she is. The post-abortive woman is living with a pain that is staggering. And in order to reach her there, we must come to a right understanding of what was lost. We have to honestly acknowledge and accept what she lost. She's not mourning the loss of a clump of cells. She's mourning the loss of a human being. And if our response to her despair, to her brokenness, to her shame, is to dehumanize the unborn or to trivialize the abortive act, we will not point her to the light. We will point her away from it. If we are going to reach her, we must honestly acknowledge what was lost, a child who was made in the image of the Lord. Our value was established at creation, and it was fortified at the cross forevermore. The Lord as creator is fundamental to our origin, our purpose, and our destiny. Psalm 95.6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Isaiah 45.18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it who has established it, who did not create in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. He established 
our value. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 9, 5b through 6, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the Lord of glory who came down. We are not merely human beings. We are human beings created in the image of the Lord. We are creatures who possess intrinsic value, something fundamental that no one and nothing can take away. It's intrinsic value, it's eternal significance. It is the Lord that causes a sperm and egg to unite. It is the Lord that causes a zygote to form. It is the Lord that causes an embryo to develop. In the Psalms, David spoke of the value of the unborn, even while he was unformed and forming. David was not speaking metaphorically. He was speaking quite literally about the care with which he was crafted. When was he unformed? At the beginning, at conception, at fertilization. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, the value of all life, born and unborn, is proclaimed. In the Old Testament, our Creator declared that man was created in His image. And in the New Testament, the intrinsic value of the human was fortified forevermore. Our Lord established the individual's value. He did it, and He fortified it at the cross. These facts are not mere hyperbole. These facts should make us dance inside. The creator of the universe proclaimed your value and mine with his very blood. Through that act, he entrenched the value of each and every human being for all eternity. The message of the Bible and of our church is not simply that Jesus died, but that he died for those he created. Being fearfully and wonderfully made was not for David alone. It applies to each and every human being. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this slide, or, and it makes the point, if you can see a very, very small, pale blue dot right here. That pale blue dot, that's the earth that you currently inhabit. It was a picture taken back in 1990 from a satellite that was passing 
about four billion, I think, light miles, light years, excuse me, away. That's a speck of dust in the vast universe. And you are a smaller speck of dust on that speck of dust. And yet the eternal God has established your value. We bear intrinsic value and eternal significance as those made in the image of the Lord. These characteristics are so fundamental to us that they literally define our very existence and cannot and will not ever be diminished or destroyed. If we are going to claim that we are not intrinsically valuable from conception, then we must be willing to accept the implications of that claim. If we are not intrinsically valuable from the very beginning, there is nothing to instill intrinsic value in us at any point thereafter. If we are not intrinsically valuable from the beginning, then any attainment of value is based on what I do, what I achieve, who I know, what I possess, how educated I am, how wealthy I am. If we are not intrinsically valuable from the beginning, then any attainment of value later on was gained through me, my own power, my own strength, not being made in the image of the Lord. To deny intrinsic value at our beginning means that any value we possess was gained through our own making. If that is true, then it is not the creator who gives us our value, but ourselves. The unequivocal truth is that we are valuable solely because we were made in the image of the Lord. That and that alone gives us value. That is a very humbling proposition. And yet, in yielding ourselves in humility to that truth, we are able to stand in true glory. Now, someone might be tempted to uh, make the argument that, you know what? The word abortion is not mentioned in Scripture, and it's not mentioned in inspiration. And that is a true statement, by the way. Two points in response to that argument. The first is this quote by E.G. White. It says, if you have given offense to your friend or neighbor, you are to acknowledge your wrong, and it is, your duty, it is his duty free, freely to forgive you. Then you are to seek the forgiveness of God, because the brother you have wounded is the property of God, and in injuring him, you sin against his creator and redeemer. Is she making a statement about the value of the human being? I think so. The second point is a question. Not yet. Is it our position as individuals and as a church that the Bible condones everything it does not explicitly condemn? Couldn't we think of quite a few sins or injustices that are not explicitly mentioned in Scripture and yet still grieve the Father's heart? My friend Scott Klusendorf of the Life Training Institute likes to use the example of lynchings based on race or gender. Neither of those is explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Does the Bible then make them permissible? I think we could all agree it doesn't. Are we not to use Scripture to interpret itself? It is evident that Scripture proclaims the value of the human being. However, in all of Scripture, 
There's not a single verse that either explicitly or implicitly states that an individual may end the life of their unborn child. I really love this quote. Science teaches that human life begins at conception. If it is also true that it is affirmed by religion, it does not, for that reason, cease to be a strictly scientific truth. Abortion either takes the life of an innocent human being or it doesn't. It can be one or it can be the other, but it cannot be both. Before we can destroy any living thing, we have to first determine what it is. My friend Steve Wagner with an organization called Justice for All likes to use this 10-second defense. If the unborn is growing, she must be alive. If she has human parents, she must be human. And living humans or human beings, like you and I, are valuable, aren't they? The definition of alive, scientists have generally agreed that things that are alive exhibit three characteristics, irritability, metabolism, and cellular reproduction. Irritability, reaction to stimuli, metabolism, converting food to energy, cellular reproduction, growth. The unborn exhibits all three characteristics. From the moment of conception, this is glorious. From the moment of conception, a unique, genetically distinct human entity comes into existence. Every scrap of genetic material that you possess right now, you possessed then. Every single bit. You were simply at a different stage of development. Nothing was added to you along the way to make you any more human or any more you. You developed from within. Everything that you possess now as you sit there, you possessed then. So we know the unborn is a human being. But some object next, well, the unborn isn't really a person. There are really only four differences between us and the unborn. Only four. And they were brought up by philosopher Stephen Schwartz. You can remember them with this acronym SLED. Size, Level of Development, Environment, and Degree of Dependency. These are the four differences really between us and the unborn. Size. It is true. The unborn is smaller than we are. Does that mean... The unborn is less valuable. A toddler is smaller than a 12-year-old. Is the toddler less valuable than the 12-year-old? I think we could agree that's not true. What about level of development? Yes, the unborn is less developed than we are. Does that mean the unborn is less valuable simply because it is less developed? I don't know how many of you know this, but scientists say that you do not reach your intellectual peak until your mid-40s. I think that's great. I have something to look forward to. Does that mean, though, that everyone who is 40 and younger is less valuable than everyone who is 40 and older simply because we're not as intellectually advanced? Is that morally relevant in determining our value? Environment. Yes, the unborn is in the womb and we are out here in the world. But does the environment determine who is valuable and who is not? I changed locations when I walked from out in the hallway into this room. 
Does that change how valuable I am? What about degree of dependency? Yes, the unborn is dependent. So are newborns. Are newborns less valuable simply because they are dependent on someone else? The reality is that the unborn in the womb requires only the proper environment and proper nutrition, just like you and I require, even now. We have to be willing to honestly acknowledge that abortion either takes the life of an innocent human being or it doesn't, but it cannot be both. If our response to this crisis, to the woman in crisis and not just woman, to the women in crisis, if our response is to dehumanize the unborn, if we decide to call the unborn a potential life or argue that the unborn is not really alive or argue that while valuable, the unborn just isn't quite as valuable as you and me, if we dehumanize the unborn, that act of dehumanization, it acts as a barrier between a woman and her redemption. Honesty on this issue is critical. It's critical to being set free. If we acknowledge and confess our sin, that is universal. If we acknowledge and confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we hide it, if we trivialize it, who is there to cover it? Now, there may be someone in the audience who is thinking, okay, I I agree with you, I see your point, but I'm really quite concerned about freedom of choice. What about um, our right to choose and our right to choose freely? If we start talking about this, um, particularly in forums like this, women are, are going to feel pressured, they're not going to have freedom of choice anymore. Do we possess the freedom of choice? Yes, absolutely. However, do we also have a duty to speak out against those choices that are harmful, morally wrong, and contrary to Scripture? Do we not speak out against adultery, lying, stealing, eating meat even? How then can we stay silent on the tragedy of abortion? Just as our stance on adultery Stealing, lying, do not remove an individual's free will to engage in those acts. Speaking about the truth of the abortive act doesn't remove the individual's free will to engage in that act. I want you... Yes, that's right. To consider these two statements... The first says, abortion is wrong, and I will speak every truth I can to persuade you that abortion is wrong. The second says, abortion is a tragic dilemma of human fallenness, and whether you choose to have an abortion, thus ending the life of your child, or whether you choose against abortion, thus protecting your child, both decisions are morally acceptable. Both of these statements preserve the individual's free will, don't they? 
By making either statement, am I forcing anyone to choose any one way? No. So what is the difference? The difference here is the direction in which the person is led. With the first statement, she is led to the light. With the second statement, she is led away from it. Please do not discount the power of your influence and your words. You heard Diane's amazing story, and you heard a little bit of mine. What was the key difference in those two stories? People believed in my value, but not just my value, the value of my mother. Through their intercession, through their pleading, through their willingness to embrace a woman in crisis, my life was spared. But not just my life, her life, her future, her spiritual soundness. For our sakes, they dared to go to those uncomfortable places. They didn't foresee that 30 years later, my voice would be used to speak life into the life of another. They did not foresee that 30 years later, I would meet a remarkable woman who was dying inside, but just waiting to be set free. This is what we have the opportunity to do to intercede not just for the life of the child, not just for the life of the mother, but for both. And to intercede not just for the physical life, but for her spiritual life. I love thinking of the cross like this. The cross is where devastation and wreckage meet hope. The cross is where you breathe in the free air of redemption. The cross is where dry bones live. This is the cross. This is life eternal. This is what we have the opportunity to offer not in our own power, not in our own strength, but by whom and through whom we are made whole. For the post-abortive woman, honoring the sanctity of life isn't to accuse her, it's not to vilify, it's not to condemn her. Honoring the sanctity of life invites her to acknowledge this truth, that she is intrinsically valuable that her child was intrinsically valuable. And though she has done what cannot be undone, a savior awaits, offering forgiveness, freedom, joy, inexpressible. If we refuse to lead women to the light on this issue, whether by our silence or by our indifference, we have hindered and continue to hinder countless women who are desperate to be set free. There's no forgiveness necessary for something that's not sin. How long 
how long will we push post-abortive women and post-abortive men aside to languish in guilt, condemnation, and despair? Moreover, for these women who are keenly aware of their sin, you heard Diane's story. For these women who have lived for years under the agonizing weight of shame, what is our silence really telling them? Many a post-abortive woman has heard, grace is available for the adulterer. Grace is available for the thief. But for you, post-abortive woman, nothing. Silence, cold, hard, unforgiving silence. Through us, through us as individuals, through we as a church, the Lord is seeking to extend his hand. He's seeking to extend his hand to those who have experienced this tragedy. The question is, will we be conduits of his redemptive grace? Will we take up our duty to boldly proclaim that men and women alike have been and can be gloriously, wonderfully redeemed? Our answer must be yes. We must have the courage to tell her that she too can be forgiven. So when the enemy sits at her shoulder, mocking, accusing, condemning, when he piles her failures on top of her, when, excuse me, when the storm rages and the thunder is rising in her ears and all she can hear are his words of condemnation, she can turn to him and boldly say, I have been redeemed. I've been redeemed. We're not redeemed because we've never sinned. We're not redeemed because we do nothing wrong. We're not redeemed because we've always been obedient. We're redeemed because we are covered by the blood. And all we need know is the answer to that question, have I been redeemed? As people who are believers in the Son of God Almighty, who have accepted his free gift of forgiveness, praise the Lord, our answer is yes. The story of the cross is the story of redemption. The person who struggles with pride is just as guilty as the woman who's had an abortion. The person who indulges in anger is just as guilty as the woman who has had an abortion. The person who covets is just as guilty as the woman who's had an abortion. Moreover, the men who stood aside while wives, girlfriends, daughters endured their abortions alone are just as guilty as the women who engaged in the act. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And yet, because we have accepted the gift of our Redeemer, when the Father looks on us, he sees his son's righteousness. He sees his son's perfection. In Hebrews 12, 2, we're told that for the joy that was set before him, our Savior endured the cross. Do you know what that joy was? It was us. He foresaw our brokenness. He foresaw our pain, our need. He knew that we would need him desperately. And he said, for you, beloved, I'm stretching out my arms and I will not come down. 
He foresaw our need, and then he anticipated our redemption. He anticipated us walking full and free and alive. He anticipated our recreation as we came to experience the transforming, life-giving power that his redemptive grace brings. We were his joy, and in us, through us, he is telling a story that the world pained broken, despairing, desperately needs to hear. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. All things. That all isn't just sugar and sweetness. All of the nice things that you've done will work together for good. And it's not just a comfort to me, to help me understand when things happen to me. No, there is no qualifier. All things work together for good. All things. All things, Father. My failures, my faults, my mistakes, my past. All things together for good to them who love God and are the called according to his purpose. What's verse 29? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to conform to the image of his son. Our Lord is sovereign. There is a reason he promises to restore what the locusts have eaten. There, are a reason he prom- there is a reason he promises to give beauty for ashes. He is sovereign over it all. And he is using, has used, and will use it all to form us into something that is truly magnificent to behold. Are we to live a life of obedience? Yes, undeniably. Are we to walk according to the truth and life we've been given? Absolutely. However, are we called to live a life of shame, condemnation, and despair? No, a thousand times no. We are called to live a life of hope, of redemption, of victory. We are called to be instruments who help set a captive free. I would ask you to hear, hear the words that have been spoken. Listen to Diane, this woman, remarkable, courageous woman who has walked through the fire and has come out whole and vibrant and free. Listen to my story as one who was literally rescued from the jaws of death. Listen, hear, and choose life. I would say we're, we're, uh, that concludes our seminar. If there are any questions, we'd be happy to take those. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.